Morning. We are in First Peter. If you're new with us, we're in First Peter chapter two. So I would invite you to open your copy of God's Word to that section. If you don't have a Bible, there may be a blue Bible located underneath the seat around you. That's for you to use. And if you turn to page 1015 in that Bible, that'll bring you to our text this morning. I titled this particular message, Living Beautifully Before the World. Living Beautifully Before the World. It could be said about our culture that there is a strong emphasis on or even an obsession with physical beauty or appearing beautiful. Would you agree? But it's not just our culture. I was thinking about the, the Olympics. We just recently had those in Brazil. And yes, thank you. And I remember, just want to see if you were listening, and uh, I, I remember reading an article a few years ago, so this happened 2014, that Brazil had surpassed the U.S. as the place with the most cosmetic surgeries performed in the world, uh, even though it has fewer people and collectively less disposable income than the U.S. So it's, it's not just an American thing. It's a global thing, this obsession with looking a particular way or, or physical beauty. Interestingly enough, last week, Thomas closed out the book of Proverbs. He preached on the blessings of an excellent wife, and he made a comment there that There's really nothing said there about the way the woman looks other than, in verse 30, it says that beauty, and it's referring to physical beauty, is vain or fleeting, right? It's temporary. And yet, so much devotion is given to it in our world, even among believers. A lot of energy spent on physical appearance. Now, while the title for this sermon this morning is, I'm just going to tell you, not at all, it's not at all about appearing physically beautiful. Just wanted to get that out of the way. It is indeed about appearing beautiful to the world in which we live. What do I mean? Well, let's examine the text together, and you will hopefully come to understand exactly what I mean with this title. So, beginning in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to be just looking at two verses this morning, verse 11 and verse 12. You follow along with me as I read from God's Word. Apostle Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All right, that's our text. You might be wondering, I didn't see the word beautiful anywhere in there. So let's talk about that. We're going to start with, the verse, uh, start with verse 12. Peter says to his Christian readers that they are to keep 
their conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Honorable, that word. I want to focus on that for a second. The New King James also uses that word, honorable. Let me show you how some other translations, good translations of the Bible, translate that specific phrase. The New American Standard Bible puts it this way. Keep your behavior excellent. So not honorable. Excellent among the Gentiles. Another translation of the Bible puts it this way. And maintain good, good conduct among the non-Christians. Just a quick note. Uh, This translation translates the word that is translated Gentiles typically as non-Christians because it's being used here in 1 Peter to speak of those who are not God's people. They are not God's people. The NIV actually translates it pagans, maintain good conduct or honorable conduct or excellent conduct among the pagans. It's referring to the unsaved world, all right? Now listen, the Greek word, the Greek word, which is K-A-L-O-S, is trans, that's translated honorable, as you just saw, and as you can see in the ESV, honorable, and excellent in the New American Standard Bible, and good in the NET Bible, is a word that means or implies more than simply the idea of being good intrinsically or good in quality. There's actually another Greek word for that, good in quality. Like you might say that food was, it's, it's good food. It, it's a, there's something good about the quality of that food. But that's not the word that's being used here by Peter. It's a different word. And because of that, because it means more than that, and in order to better relate its proper meaning in this particular context, some Bible translations, as we've just seen, have chosen different English words for it other than just the word good, as the NET has chosen to do. In fact, hear me, the Greek word actually includes the idea of something being lovely, beautiful, attractive, or winsome. Lovely, beautiful, attractive, or winsome. That's a word we don't use very often in our culture, but winsome is the idea of being appealing or attractive in appearance or character. Okay? Something about it, it's beautiful, it's lovely, you're attracted to it. That is all included in this word good. The same Greek word is used to describe the stones of Israel's temple. Let me show that to you. In one translation of the Bible, it's in Luke 21.5, it puts it this way, some of his disciples were remarking, were remarking about how the temple was adorned with, there's the word, there's the Greek word, beautiful stones, okay? Beautiful stones. The New American Standard Bible, the New King James Bible uh, also use the word beautiful, when translating this particular Greek word there in that context. The ESV Bible chooses noble. They're all trying to get at the meaning of this word here. And noble means showing fine quality, so it still has that that idea. Interestingly enough, the, the original King James Version, it translates that Greek word there about the stones. It calls them goodly. They're goodly stones. What? Well, a definition of that in the day, meant attractive. There's something lovely about them, okay? 
Concerning the use of word in 1 Peter, I like, the, I like what one Bible scholar said. He puts it simply like this. The term suggests the loveliest, the loveliest kind of visible goodness. Okay? The loveliest kind of visible goodness. That's the conduct that Peter is calling us to. There's something, it's beautiful, it's attractive, it's winsome, it's lovely. Now remember, this this command or this call of Peter to us is that we are to keep our conduct, this type of conduct, this beautiful conduct among the Gentiles, honorable. It's among the Gentiles, among the unsaved world we are to be living in this way. Or as the NIV puts it, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Just don't want you to miss that. It's not just, you know... Have excellent behavior, but remember, see the key here, it's among the unsaved world. So what I believe Peter is calling for in verse 12 of our text is good conduct or behavior that is truly and undeniably lovely, that appears beautiful or attractive even to the unbelieving world around us which is why I titled it Living Beautifully Before the World. Now, hopefully you understand better what I mean by that. Or I might put it this way. Our conduct or behavior as Christians in this world should not be something that repels the unbelieving world around us, but rather something that attracts them and can draw them to the gospel that is driving and empowering the excellent, honorable, lovely, or beautiful behavior that they are observing among us. One writer commenting on the passage says this, Peter was anxious that their Christian conduct be attractive and winsome. Peter was also aware that genuine Christian character has a winsomeness about it, which impresses even the most skeptical. Even the most skeptical. We might call this, it's, uh, we might refer to this kind of behavior, this conduct, conduct beyond reproach. Conduct beyond reproach. And, and let me point something out to you that Peter's not the only one concerned about this or addressing this. It's addressed other places as well in the Scriptures. That is how we live before an unbelieving world and a call to live before them in such a way that that is beautiful and lovely and honorable and noble. Let me show you. The Apostle Paul in the book of Titus, in the book of Titus, chapter 2, verses 3 through 10 I'll read through it, and I'll show you that this concern is addressed again and again. So we're not just being called to to live a a, a holy life, a beautiful life, but there's something attached to it. It's living it before this unbelieving world, and there's a purpose for that. Okay, Let's read. Starting in verse 3, the Apostle Paul says this, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. He's speaking about the Christian women. Not to be slanders or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. 
then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children. I think you referred to this verse last week, Thomas. I lost my train of thought. Five, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands. Now notice, this is a purpose statement. So that, doing all that, all that wonderful, beautiful behavior, so that no one will malign the word of God. Malign is harm. How might someone... In other words, if they did not live this way, if they were not reverent in the way that they lived, if they were slanderers, if they were addicted to much wine, if they did not teach what is good, if they did not train the younger women to love their husbands, if they were not self-controlled, if they were not pure, right? If they were not those things, somehow that would malign or harm the word of God. How might that be? Well, they would look at their behavior, the unbelieving world, And they would say, why would we want anything to do with your Christianity? Because what it produces is ugly. I don't want any of that. I can find that in the world. You get me? You with me? See the connection? So it is very important how the Christian behaves, especially, not just because they're called to live for God, but they're living for God in front of an unbelieving world that is skeptical about their claims. And this is one way that we drive home the reality that Christianity is superior, is glorious, because it produces, or it's supposed to produce, in the people that adhere to it, something wonderful, something beautiful, which is seen in the way they conduct themselves, even in a hostile world. Look, it's not just there. He continues to address it, verse 6. Similarly, like that, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech, That cannot be condemned. This is behavior above reproach. They won't be able to condemn it because it is wonderful and glorious and beautiful. And then he says, purpose statement, so that those who oppose you, oppose Christianity, may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Right? So the idea is that, yeah, they're opposing what they believe, they're opposing this thing called Christianity, but in the end, they look at these folks and they go, but the truth is, look at this. They, they live in such a way that even we recognize is beautiful and lovely, is worthy of honor. What are we to do? Be like, why are you talking? Why are you speaking so poorly of these people? They live in a way that we have to confess it's beautiful. It's not evil. He goes on. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them. And again, most of the population, there was an arrangement like this. It was like an employee-employer, okay, when it speaks of slaves. Not to talk back to them and not to steal from them. Don't do those things, but to show that they can be fully trusted, purpose statement, what is the reason for all that? So that in every way 
They will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Attractive. Meaning that, beloved, if they're doing all those things, the opposite, what is the result? It will make the teaching about our God, our Savior, unattractive. If they're stealing, if they're talking back, if they're, if they're people who cannot be trusted as employees, and yet they claim they're Christians, then why would I be attracted to your Christianity? You hear me? Right. So we should be then, huh? Ready? Excellent, lovely, beautiful employees, as an example, or employers. We should be, as Christians now, we should be excellent neighbors. (laughs) We should be excellent citizens wherever we're found, whatever country we may be in. We should be excellent citizens. We should be excellent husbands and excellent wives. We should be characterized as people living beautifully before the world by the transforming grace of God. Because that's how we do it. We don't have the ability on our own to do it, but... This new thing that has happened to us in Christ empowers us to do that very thing, and we are to do it and show the world that Christianity is glorious and wonderful and make it appealing by the way we live. And yet, even when I was writing this, I was thinking to myself, having been a manager at one time for a company, And having to hire people, I'm just going to tell you, personally, I got to a place after having done that for a long time that if a potential employee told me they were a Christian, I was wearied by that and suspect. Because over and over again, this is just a personal experience, I have found that those who claim to be believers were actually worse employees than my pagan employees. Now, whether they were believers or not, only God knows. So certainly that plays into it. People profess faith in Christ all the time, but really have no saving faith, so they have not been changed. They're not really living for the Lord. They just kind of latch on to the title. But if any of them were believers, then that is a shame. Because... What they portrayed was something that was not beautiful or excellent or lovely. Not showing up to work on time, calling in sick for this or that, not doing a good job, not giving it their all, not working unto the Lord as the Christian is called to do, not respecting their authorities. You see, that should not be so. It should be, it should be, that the believer working in any company should be the best worker in that company. It should be that the neighbor, Christian neighbor in a neighborhood should be the best neighbor in that community. It should be. That is what God has called us to. There's a purpose for it. We're living before a fallen world. They are watching. 
They are watching. And we either mar the name of Christ or we glorify the name of Christ based on the way we're living our lives. We drag it through the mud or we exalt it based on the way we live our lives. I don't know about you, beloved. I don't want to drag his name through the mud. I don't want to make Christianity look bad because of my lousy conduct and behavior that I've chosen not to pay attention to or be concerned about. Whatever. I'll live the way I want to live. No, Christian. No. You're called to live a particular way. You have a master. And it's really critical, as we'll see here in a moment, how you live. It's not just for you, it's for those around you. Now, we'll come back to verse 12, but before Peter, listen, before Peter calls his Christian readers to keep their conduct among the Gentiles honorable or excellent, he urges them to do something first. He urges them to do something first. That's in verse 11. Let's look at it. Beloved. I use this word a lot. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful word. It's a term of affection. It means my dear ones. Speaking to them affectionately. Beloved, I urge you or I appeal to you as, okay, as sojourners. Another translation says aliens. The idea is he's, he's identifying them as people living in a country that is not their own. They are foreigners. And exiles. Another translation says strangers. Strangers. They are aliens and strangers as sojourners and exiles, all right? Let's stop right there. I urge you as sojourners and exiles too. We're going to stop right there and not look at the rest of that statement. Listen, Peter, in light of what he goes on to urge them to do, reminds his Christian readers of who they are right now, who they are right now. They are sojourners and exiles. They are aliens and strangers. In what sense, you ask? In what sense? in the sense that this world, by God's saving and rescuing grace, is no longer their true home. It's no longer their true home. Christians temporarily reside in this fallen world, but, as you've probably heard many times, they are no longer of it. They are no longer of it. As Christians, we reside in a strange land, a foreign country, And live alongside people to whom we do not truly belong. Do you feel that? I feel it more and more every passing year. I'm living in a strange land. I am a foreigner here. This is not my home. We are God's redeemed people, his chosen people, a people called by God, out of darkness, into his marvelous light, making us foreigners in this fallen world. Now, hear me. Foreigners, beloved, generally speaking, behave a little differently than the natives do. Yeah? Right? It doesn't typically take long to identify someone who is new to the territory. Okay? Okay? whose ways and customs are different, right? They behave 
a little differently than the natives. Or you could say that foreigners are in some ways set apart from the natives, right? They're set apart. So, Christians, foreigners, aliens, and strangers in this world as we are, who are called and empowered by God to be holy in all their conduct, 1 Peter 1, 14-16, should, it would certainly seem, be different in some ways than the natives. Or those who belong to the world, in this case, in this context. I say some ways because, of course, there are similarities too, right? Wherever you go, you'll find all cultures working and raising families and going on vacation. There are similarities, but certainly there are distinctions between the natives of a particular locale and the foreigners. We are the foreigners here in this world, so you would expect there to be a difference. One writer says this, our identity as the people of God, verse 10 in 1 Peter, becomes the basis for our conduct in the world. As citizens of heaven, we are aliens and strangers in this world. We must, therefore, live in a way which sets us apart. Okay, so what is one significant way that sets us apart? from the natives of this world. What is one significant way that is true, that you can see the reality that we are foreigners here? This is not our home. Well, it's based on what he goes on to urge them to do. So let me read now verse 11 again in another translation, and maybe it'll be a little more clear to you. The the translation puts verse 11 like this. Dear friends, you are outsiders and strangers in this world. So I am asking you not to give in to your sinful longings. See, don't do what the world does, stranger, alien, exile, foreigner. You aren't of this world anymore. The world around us, the fallen world, the the pagan, they give in to, they embrace. They indulge in, they wallow in their sinful longings. They can do no other because they are enslaved to their sin. They love sin. They embrace sin. They live for it. You, alien, stranger to this world, Live as an alien and stranger to this world and don't do what the natives do. Do not give in to your sinful longings. One writer says this, Peter expects Christians behave in a way significantly different from unbelievers who are only of this world. Okay. Now remember, this is verse 11. Verse 11 comes before verse 12. So let's look back at verse 11 again. Beloved, reading in the ESV, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, that is what you are, to abstain. That's in the present tense. That means you can, you're abstaining and you're continuing to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The order of what is in verse 11 and verse 12, how Peter puts it, 
He puts the content here in verse 11, and, and then he says what he says in verse 12 about keeping your conduct honorable or excellent among the Gentiles. The order is important because what you have here in verse 11 is really the prerequisite for verse 12. Verse 12 doesn't happen if verse 11 doesn't happen. Okay? And verse 12 being the honorable, lovely, beautiful, or winsome conduct or behavior. Outward. That's the outward behavior. That's the display of our behavior that Christians are called to manifest to this unbelieving world that they reside in. That doesn't happen without the prerequisite being met, beloved, which is the inner discipline. So here's the outward behavior, but before that can actually happen, there needs to be an inner discipline of abstaining. Or literally the word means holding oneself back. Holding oneself back. In the present tense, it means constantly. Constantly holding oneself back. From what? From the passions of the flesh or the sinful cravings of our old nature. Cravings which wage war against our souls. Or you could say it this way, the wicked desires that still reside in our fallen human flesh that seek to capture and destroy us and make us ineffective or useless for God and prevent us from truly living excellently or beautifully before this world. We also learn from this text something about ourselves, don't we? One writer puts it this way, the pilgrim of God which is what we are, we're a passing through, as we see him, carries about a battlefield inside his own personality. A battlefield inside his own personality. Have you felt that? Listen, beloved, listen. We, me, I, me. Now, collectively we, but me. I am my own worst enemy. You are your own worst enemy. We are our own worst enemy. We are our biggest problem. Not the devil. Listen, the devil just capitalizes on our weakness, our sin, and our sinful tendencies. He capitalizes on it, certainly. He exacerbates our problem, certainly. But he is not the biggest problem. We are. Not others. Not your spouse. Not, your, not the traffic, not your neighbor, not your employer, not your employees. We are. And by saying that, that we are our own worst enemy, I don't mean, because I looked up the phrase, and it's used in a way that I'm not using it. I don't mean that we are our own worst enemy because we don't believe in ourselves enough. Or we are too critical of ourselves. Or we don't tell ourselves enough how wonderful we are. That is not what I mean by that statement, although it is used that way. No, I'm speaking about the fact that we need to desperately be rescued from ourselves on an ongoing basis. I need to be. You need to be. That is from rescued from our sinful desires that battle against our pursuit of holiness and seek to ruin us and our testimony for God. 
There is a very real war going on inside of us as believers, as Christians. In the unbeliever, there's no war. All right? They wave the white flag. They're good. Truce. Truce with you, sin. But when God comes into your life, when you are born again, there is a war now going on inside of you. You are a new creature in Christ, and yet you still have this old fallen flesh that we will rid ourselves of one day, but until then, the war is on. One writer puts it this way, the depth of the struggle in which believers are engaged is explained by the words which war against your soul. War. You know, not like, Uh, tickle you a little bit or, you know, irritate you a little bit. No, war! Obviously, the desires of the flesh that emerge in believers are quite strong if they are described in terms of warfare as an enemy that attempts to conquer believers. Such desires must be resisted and conquered, and the image used implies that this is no easy matter. Christian life is certainly not depicted as passive in which believers simply let go and let God. Sinful desires, if they are allowed to triumph, ultimately destroy human beings. There's a war. But another lesson from this text we can draw out is if we are told to abstain, which we are, or hold ourselves back from our sinful cravings, or our passions of the flesh, guess what? That implies that we are able to do that. Hello. We are able to do that. We are able to do that. You don't understand, Pastor Jeremy. These passions are too strong. No, you don't, you don't understand, my friend. You have the power now in Christ to say no to those passions, to hold them back, to resist those urges, those fallen fallen urges. And beloved, we know we're able because Christ's death and resurrection has set us free from our previous enslavement to sin. Sin used to be our master, but it is no longer if we are in Christ, Romans 6, which we covered. A while ago, if you want to look that up and you never heard that, go find it on the web and listen to that full chapter. I think I only spent four or five years in it. So yeah, it might take you a while, but it's worth it. It's worth it. One writer says this, Peter's appeal makes it clear that such inward desires are not uncontrollable, but can be consciously nurtured, that means encouraged, or restrained, that means to hold hold it back or abstain. You, either one, you can, you can choose to continue to nurture your sinful desires, encourage them, let them have their way, or you can do what the Apostle Peter has called us to, ultimately God has called us to do, and that is to abstain, to hold them back, because they wage war against your soul, and they will make it very difficult to live beautifully before this fallen world. I would say impossible. To live in a way that is, is lovely and winsome. Now, let's go back to verse 12. 
Apostle Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitations. Okay, one thing at a time. So it says that when they speak against you as evildoers, another translation says, though they accuse you of doing wrong. What is that about? What is that about? Well, we know Jesus said this, right, in Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Okay? So this is not, they're not accusing believers of doing evil because believers are doing evil. It's a false accusation. It's slander. So what could that possibly be? Well, we know historically, historically, as one writer uh, points out, that the church, believe it or not, Christians, were accused of uh, murder, incest, and cannibalism. You go, that's crazy. How could that possibly be? Okay. So remember, the, the Christian church, it was, it was newly born. It was very different from the world at that time, very different. And so the world was suspect of it. You know, this, we're 2,000 years now on this side where Christianity has been around a long time. But this is a brand new thing. And they're looking at them like, these folks, they're different. They're strange in some ways, we think. They're not like, they're not operating the same way they used to. And they have these secret meetings. They have these meetings where they get together. And uh, I heard that they eat uh, the flesh of, their, of the Messiah, the, their Savior or whatever. They eat his flesh. Uh, uh, they, they call each other brother and sister, right? They refer to each other that way, but they're very, they're very affectionate with one another. Ah, incest. They have these things called love feast. Uh, we, we think that they're doing some very strange things there. Beyond that, beyond that, they gave up their worship, these pagans, they gave up their worship of all the pagan gods. So they actually referred to them, the world, as atheists. Because they no longer adhered to all the gods or gave themselves to the emperor as God. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't recognize him that way anymore. So they must be atheists. They're unbelievers. Because they believe in this one true God. They don't worship the, God that, the gods that they worshiped before. So there were these accusations. There, and none of them were true. Obviously, they weren't, they weren't actually, you know, because we're going to have communion today. We're going to share communion, and we're not cannibals. We're not actually eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Christ, are we? You might, if you were Catholic, that's a different story because they, they believe that it actually becomes the flesh and blood of Christ. But this is, it is not that. It is a memorial meal. It, it symbolizes his body and his blood given for us. But we're not cannibals, right? But those were some of the accusations. Okay? Now, so, historically, in the context, certainly, there were people speaking against them as evildoers. I, I, I might even say, bring it into our context, okay? Because people probably know now, okay, you're not cannibals, and you're not practicing incest, and you're certainly not atheists. Uh, you know, we, we have those distinctions now. No, we're believers, and, and other people are referred to as atheists who don't believe in any type of God or higher power or whatever. Um, but certainly there are accusations made against Christians. So, for instance, because of our doctrinal stand on human sexuality, it is often said that we are hateful people. Yes? Okay. 
or hateful people. So that is a false accusation. That is slander. So I want to live in such a way that I demonstrate over and over again that that is not the truth. That's ultimately, that is a more, that fits into our context better, just thinking of that one. I want to demonstrate to those around me, to the unbelieving world, I want to confuse them. They might hear, you're Christians, you're hateful. But then they see something that contradicts that very thing, and they go, wait a minute. These people are good people. They live in a way that is beautiful, that is excellent, that is honorable. Maybe there's more to this than I thought. Maybe I should look into this further. But if we affirm the slander by living hatefully in other ways, then all we do is just drive that false idea home and them further away from ever exploring potentially Christianity. Do you see what I'm saying? So if I'm a hateful neighbor, if I'm, if I'm unloving, if I'm a jerk neighbor, and then they also identify that I'm a believer because they see me going to church, and then they hear that, yeah, church folks are hateful people, real judgmental, always looking down on everyone, and then I behave in a way that's looking down upon my neighbor, or I'm hateful towards them, or I show them no love at all, I'm not kind, I'm, I show them no mercy, nothing. What am I doing? I'm confirming the slander in their mind. I'm driving them further away from, then they identify that with my Christianity. And beloved, I think all of this really points us to our ongoing need, all of it, all of this here, for God's transforming grace and power in our lives. Because listen, we have not yet been glorified, right? So we still wrestle with sin, yes? We still wrestle with sin, The unbeliever just gives in to it. The Christian wrestles with it, which means not only that we struggle with sinning against others, but also what that means is is that when we are sinned against, when someone slanders us, when they say things about us that are hurtful and not true, because we're still living in this fallen state, we have a tendency to respond sinfully. You hear me? So listen, as sinners, we saved by grace, we are still, we still struggle and we sin against others, but worse yet, when we're sinned against, instead of responding in a way that is lovely or winsome or attractive with patience and forgiveness and kindness, huh? We are we tend to respond in anger, in frustration, in revenge. How dare they say that about me? And this, so I mean, what Peter's calling us to can only only actually happen through God's transforming grace in our lives and our reliance completely upon it and the Holy Spirit that resides inside of us. That's, That's the only way this could happen because our tendency is the exact opposite. You said something bad about me? I'll show you. Or they say something, and instead of still showing them kindness, we uh, slight, you know, I'm not probably doing it well, but uh, like we, you know, uh, like the neighbor or whatever, or the person, your, your co-worker, they say something bad about Christianity, oh, uh, I don't want anything to do with them anymore. 
You see? Because that's, that's naturally how we respond in our sinful flesh. But Peter's calling us to something that's a supernatural thing that can only happen by the power of God that's working in us and through us through his spirit. Where you then go to this guy who's, or lady or whatever who's making such claims or you know they believe this and yet you still are kind to them. You still, you still show them compassion. You still look out for their welfare. You still try to share Christ with them. Yeah, I, I get all that. You know, you, you, okay, let me share this Christ with you and let me live it out before you as I'm doing that to demonstrate to you I am not that. You are confused. Christianity is beautiful and glorious. Ah. Okay. The other thing I would say is our, wow, our need for the gospel here is evident too in the fact that we need to find our identity in Christ, beloved. And I've said this many times, not what people think or say about us. This is where the gospel is so powerful. You know, so what if the world slanders us? So what? But if you find your identity in what, how the world identifies you or how the unbelieving world of all things characterizes you wrongfully and you go, oh, and you come, you come undone, then you're going to have a hard time responding to them beautifully, right? But if you find your identity in Christ, then they can say whatever they want and you're not obliterated by their slander. You don't come undone. I would say this applies to many things, even, you know, Facebook and my goodness, you know, so people say something and negative and whoa, you watch the war go on and that tell, that's identifying someone who's not finding their identity in the gospel of Christ. How dare you attack me? Who cares? I know who I am in Christ. I am redeemed. I'm a child of God. I'm washed clean. I'm on my way to heaven. Say what you want. And I don't mean that in a way like say what you want. Say what you want. But I can love you still. I can love you still because I'm good. I'm good with God because of Jesus Christ. Say what you want. I'll still love you. I'll still tell you about Christ. Oh, you think I'm crazy? Say what you want. I might be a little, but I love Jesus Christ, and I want you to love him too because there's nothing more glorious than him. I'm on my way there. The world's passing away. Say what you want. All right, 1 Peter 2.12, then he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds that they may see them. You keep your conduct among them honorable, beautiful, so that when they speak against you, they may see your good deeds. That's the purpose statement. So one writer says, when Christians are misunderstood and slandered, the proper answer is not withdrawal from the world. That's another reaction of Christians. That's it. I'm out of here. I'm gone. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. We're, let's gather all the Christians together in one place so we don't have to deal with you unbelievers anymore. You think I'm messing around? I'm not messing around. What's it called? What's it called? They're all moving. Redoubt. Look it up. All the believers want to get together. And they're gathering in Idaho and Montana. It's at various locations because they're, they're sick of these unbelieving people. I mean, there's more to it than that. There's politics and so on and so forth. I get that. But listen, we're not called to 
We're going to be gathered together, beloved. Here now, we're on mission. Hello. We're on mission to proclaim Christ and live him out in a way that is beautiful and attractive and winsome before an unbelieving world. Yep. So, uh, the proper answer is not withdrawal from the world, nor contemptuous disregard of the opinions of one's opponents, (sighs) but manifest purity of conduct. That's how we are to respond. Good deeds are the best answer to the opposition of a hostile world. It confuses the crud out of them in a good way. Wait a minute. I'm confused. thought these people were terrible, but they are not. So maybe there's something to the whole Christian thing. And beloved, the slander's going to get louder. I'm, pre- I'm trying to prepare us, even my own heart. It's going to get louder. The false accusations are going to increase in level of soundness, saying awful and terrible things about the church, untrue things. How are we to respond? Honorable conduct. One writer says, the evident transformation of their behavior will contradict false allegations circulating in society. Right? I may not be able, I, I may not be able to have any influence on, you know, blogger or, or folks over there, but in my circle of influence, I can have influence. The people that I relate with on a daily basis at work, in my community, right? I can show them that what is being said doesn't make sense. Because I'm living before them in an honorable way, in an excellent way. My conduct, my behavior is excellent. They can see it. I show mercy. I show compassion. I show love. I'm there to help in a time of need. What are they going to do with that? They're just going to be like, I don't, I hear stuff. I hear stuff, but I see this. And this is not, I can't deny it. And they say they're this because of Christ. What am I to do? Come on over, baby. Come on over. It's good over here. That's what you are to do. And we keep telling them that. And our life backs it up. You would think we have community today, but I just am pretending we don't. That's why. Uh, And so I have to finish with this last phrase, and I'll do that. There's a final phrase in here. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation on the day of visitation. Let me just address this quickly, and then we'll have communion together, okay? There's some question about what Peter means exactly here on the day of visitation. What does that mean? Uh, a couple things. Um, that idea of visitation or that word is used. It can mean either God visiting people in judgment, or it can mean God visiting people in blessing. It's used both ways, Okay? There are some who believe that this is a reference to judgment, that, um, and specifically the final judgment or when Christ returns on the day, uh, the, uh, and glorify God on the day, a specific day of visitation, okay? Meaning the day of judgment. So, and it's possible it means that, but I'm going pres- to present to you another idea, the blessing side, which I think I'm convinced that's what he's, Peter's referring to here. 
But the judgment side would seem something like this then. So you live your life in front of them, and, and you, even though they're accusing you falsely, you do that so that in the day of judgment, they'll be forced to, by God, to recognize your uh, good deeds now, even though they slandered you before, they'll, be, they'll recognize your, your honorable conduct and behavior, and they'll be forced to glorify God in that way. I don't think that's, I don't think that's what it means. It's possible, but I don't think that's what it means. Rather, and by the way, it's the day of visitation, but the word the, which is a definite article, it's not there in the original. So it could just be translated a day of visitation. So it may not be a specific day then. It may not be referring to the return of Christ. But even if it, if it is, I think that this translation or this interpretation I'm going to give you now would fit, which is he's talking about, this is an evangelistic uh, idea, that they would see your good deeds, right? As you're, even though they hear the slander, they see your good deeds and they are attracted to those and they begin to be drawn to the gospel that's driving those because you're, you're saying, I'm doing this because I'm a follower of Christ. So they're drawn to this Christ and some of them repent and believe in this Christ and thereby through that glorify God on, the, on, a, on when they are visited by him in this blessing, blessed way, in, in the sense of salvation. So they investigate, they observe you, they see what's going on, and that, that causes them to now turn to the gospel that you're proclaiming and professing and saying you're living under, and then they give themselves to that and they glorify God as God brings his salvation to them. I think it means that. And let me tell you why I'm most convinced it means that. It's the immediate context. It's the immediate context. For me, is the strongest thing to look at. So as I look at 1 Peter and I keep reading on, I get to chapter 3. And as, as you'll see as we move on in Peter, he's basically just going to be talking about ways to have honorable conduct before the world. He's going to now get into specifics. But here he talks about wives and husbands, specifically an unbelieving husband, an unbeliever. I'll read it for you. Chapter 3, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, i.e., they are unbelievers, they do not obey the word of God, they are not Christians, right? So this is a Christian woman living with a non-Christian husband. Either way, be subject to your husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Okay, a couple things real quick. You can keep that up there. That word see, that word see in the Greek is the same exact word that's used here in 1 Peter 2.12 when he says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And that's interesting because that word is only used in the New Testament here and in 1 Peter 2, only. And the word doesn't just mean see, it's like a close examination, it's observe. They're observing. He uses that same word here. He also, the word conduct, used here and used in 1 Peter 2, keep your conduct among them honorable, same word. It's the same type of language. And here, clearly in 1 Peter 3, he is talking about the reality of a wife who continues to honor the Lord, continues to serve him, continues to have this this respectful and pure conduct, and by it, her unbelieving husband is drawn 
to Christ. He is one for Christ. That shows you the power of righteous living. So that's what I believe it means. One writer says, effective evangelism flows from the power of a righteous life. Effective evangelism flows from the power of a righteous life. We must proclaim the gospel. We got to tell them about Jesus Christ and how one might be saved, but then living it out is what gives it punch. Living it out properly, according to the word of God. Being beautiful, living beautifully before the world. And that means, beloved, even in the face of ugliness, and it's going to get uglier, even in the face of ugliness, we are not to be ugly, but continue to be beautiful, winsome, attractive to this fallen world that they might be drawn to the wonder that is Christ and the blessings of the gospel.